Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari and this is Great Big History Podcast. We continue our History 102 lessons with the Reformation, the Counter-Reformation. Who knows God? God knows who. The Reformation goes from 1517 to 1648, but the questions of the Reformation will go on beyond 1648. The question over who controls knowledge doesn't really end until, well, there's still debates about who controls knowledge. But the question of the Reformation is, is it the church, the traditional um, institution that controls knowledge? The church controlled knowledge based on the Bible and classical Greek-Roman interpretations. And it had a theocentric universe. God was the center of the universe. It's kind of Shakespeare's. Um, all the world is a stage and we are merely players well whose stage who built the stage who owns the theater that's God so the church is the traditional for the last you know thousand years the traditional institution of knowledge it was the best educated and most important institution in the lives of people in terms of how do you understand the universe. The Reformation will challenge that with the individual, that you, little you, the nothing, nobody you, is in charge of knowledge, that you are important. And this is completely new. Where is this knowledge going to be based? Who knows? We don't know. It can't be the Bible. That's the church. It can't be classical. That's the church. So it has to be new. Now, can it be new interpretations of the Bible and classical knowledge? Maybe. Probably. But it's also going to need something different, too. And that will be our next lecture. Science. But this, the world the Reformation sees, because it values the individual, is humanism. The idea that people are the most important actors in the universe, not God. And we're going to see this emphasized over and over and over again, that you determine your value in the universe, not God. You are the actor in your life. You are the superhero of your life. Your life is all about you. You are not an actor on God's stage. This conflict will tear Europe apart. It will fuel 150 years of warfare. It will kill somewhere around 50 million people by 1648 and maybe 200 million people by 1945. It will end the Roman imperial ideal of a united Europe. That, that's dead until basically the EU post-1990 kind of starts incorporating Eastern European states into it and forming this new economic union and less of a political union, though that's always up for debate. The Reformation will also help create the modern independent nation-state with its own government, its own laws, its own culture. Well, why? Because Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a German monk in the early 1500s who didn't really like being a monk. He was convinced he was going to hell. And he didn't really like how the Italian-led Catholic Church ran things. 
He was a German. Why do I have Italian priests in a German church? And he didn't like the way the church in Germany was treated by those Italians. How they kept sending money to Rome and the money didn't come back. How Italian bishops and cardinals kept getting the best jobs. Meanwhile, German priests and monks got locked out. He didn't really like how the Italians led the Catholic Church, which, you know, fair enough. And in 1517, he will write the 95 Theses and then nail them, <laughs> nail them dramatically to the church at Wittenberg. Now, nobody cared. I'm going to tell you, it's it's always portrayed as this, oh, I will nail the. Basically, he did vandalism, right? <laughs> so, like, I always think about, like, the priest, the head priest, the bishop would have opened up the door and go, what, what, who's knocking? What do you want? You know, but the 95 theses, he's got 99, pro he's got 95 problems and the Pope is one. is the idea that the church needs to reform. These are 95 things he, he has a beef with. And the biggest one, the one that will play the biggest kind of, the thing that sticks in his craw, the thing that's in his grill, is indulgences, which are payments people give to the church in exchange for prayers. And the payment is to be used to build St. Peter's. Now, St. Peter's Basilica is the largest church in the world. Why does the Pope need to build St. Peter's in 1500? The reason why is 50 years earlier, the Hagia Sophia got conquered by the Turks and turned into a mosque. The Hagia Sophia, built by Justinian, was the largest Christian church in the world. Now the largest Christian church in the world is a mosque. That's embarrassing. And so there's other reasons why the Pope would want to build St. Peter's, but the big one is to show that Christianity is powerful, it's rich. And so what they sold were indulgences, and people bought them. And the idea is priests would say prayers, and if you've ever been to a Catholic Mass, you know we do this at the beginning of uh, every Mass. We say prayers for the souls of the dead. And the idea of that is that those prayers help someone get out of hell sooner. You couldn't have been a jerk. Or God takes mercy on those who people pray for. Like, that makes sense. Like, don't you want that? Like, your child dies, your wife dies, someone you care about dies, your mother dies. You don't want them in hell. And remember, in 1500, everybody goes to hell for a little while. There's no one who's that good. Remember, even Jesus went to hell for three days. So if Jesus went, we all got to go. That is not the current Catholic Church teaching. It's now very hard to go to hell. But you have to understand, in 1500, everybody went to hell for a little while. And one of the ways you got out of hell quicker was important people said prayers for you. Because, remember, Jesus and God have mercy. And so if you're asking... Dear God, help my wife, help my child, help my the soul of my mother. They're good people. I love them. I want them in heaven to be with you. What, what good God wouldn't say, all right, I'll give you 50 years. I'll give you 100 years off, off, the, 
off off the 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 punishment. Now, what happens if a church, a hundred people, five hundred people, a thousand people say those prayers? Does Jehovah not answer those prayers? Of course, Jehovah answers those prayers. Jehovah is mercy. Jehovah is love, right? Now, what if a priest does it? What if a bishop does it? What if a cardinal does it? What if the pope does it? All those people in the hierarchy are worth more than little old me. So me by myself may get 50 years. A thousand people equals a thousand times 50. But one of them is the priest. Well, he's worth 200 years, right? And then the bishop is, happens to be there that day. And he says he's worth 500 years. And then the cardinal is asked, and he says, yeah, okay, I'll give you, I'll give a, a prayer for the soul of your mom, and that's a thousand years off, right? And I'm important enough that I write to the Pope and say, hey, I'll buy a million dollars worth of indulgences. Can you say a prayer for my, my mom? And the Pope says, of course I can. No problem. Thanks for the million dollars. We're going to build St. Peter's. It's going to be great. And let's, what's your mom's name? Let's get going. And that knocks 10,000 years off or whatever it may be, right? This is fine. This is the way it has always worked. Martin Luther looks at that as bribery, that you are paying money to get people out of hell, that you're, you can leave money to get yourself out of hell, right? You are bribing God. That is not God's mercy. It's you using a loophole to get out of hell. Remember, Martin Luther is convinced he's going to hell for a long time. And so he's, he's, pro, he's looking at all these problems. He's looking at all these things going, that's really bribery. Two, no one understands the Latin Mass, nor the Latin Bible. No, it is 1517, why are you doing the Mass in a dead language? No one speaks. Nobody understands. From a book... Nobody can read. You need to have the service and the Bible in a readable language. It has to be accessible. This is what Martin Luther says. Now, the Catholic Church response to this is not right now, but the Catholic Church response is to not make the Bible in English or in any local language until the 1960s. So the Catholic Church is going to be slow on this one. But their response is, it's complicated. The Bible is a giant, complicated bunch of books. And if we just hand it willy-nilly to just ordinary people, chaos will ensue. Like, the Bible literally contradicts itself. It makes laws and then later on says the opposite. There are four Gospels that don't agree on almost anything. Which one's right? They're all right. Which one's wrong then? And they're all wrong. If they're all right, then they all must be wrong. Right? That's the problem. And so you kind of really need to be a theologian to know this, which is a problem because Martin Luther looks at these Italian priests, these German priests, and go, most of them are decadent. They're poorly educated. They're bad at their jobs. Now, Martin Luther is a good he doesn't like being a monk, but he's good at the thinking part. He's good at the education part. He's a smart guy. I am a, I'm a Catholic, but I'm also not the biggest historical fan of Luther. And I, I do this period. I do the early modern period. 
I am a Scandinavian historian from 1520 to 1721. This is my period, right? And I'm not the biggest fan of Luther. I'm not blown away by him. But credit where it's due, the man knew how to think. And he looks around and goes, these priests aren't doing a good job. They're lazy. They're decadent. They don't want to really be priests. They don't want to really be monks. They got a good job because it was a good job that didn't really require much. These people aren't called to be priests. They got nowhere else to go. They're rich kids who are lazy at it. And so they, they have wives and they have kids and they, they, they like their silks and their drinking and they're, they, they're just, they, they know, none of them read, they don't read, they don't really know St. Augustine, they can't do a debate at all. Most of these guys are just losers. And he's not wrong. Even the ones who are trying to be good at their job are stuck in a system that doesn't encourage goodness, efficiency. It's a system that is decadent. It hasn't had to, it hasn't had to compete for 1,500 years. Martin Luther also has a problem with the icons, the statues, the sacraments, the silks, the ceremonies, even the Pope. All of this stuff is extra. It's not in the Gospels. You don't need it. It's all superfluous. It's all extra. It's all just stuff to spend money on and then to ask for more money. You don't need it. And so it's not pure. It's all fat. It's all, and I can't really say that because fat is necessary. You need fat, right? Fat is when you eat a steak. You want fat in it. And so it's, it's not fat. It's just extra you just don't need it. And it's, it's got problems with the Ten Commandments. It's got problems with the Gospels. Remember, Jesus is a poor dude who walks around with nothing. And so, you know, Luther's looking at the Gospels going, eh, these two things don't work. And what does the 1,500-year-old Italian church do? It laughs at him. So come on, dude. Whatever. Do I really have time for a, uh, a depressed, angry, disaffected German monk? Come on. Living in the woods of Wittenberg? I mean, come on. Come on. Please. Like, I'm the Pope in Rome. Please. But he has some good points, as we pointed out. Like, everything, all those points. Indulgences, the people don't understand the Latin Mass, the priests are decadent, all the icons and all the extra stuff, it's all true. It's all right. You know, the extra stuff, the icons, the sacraments, the, the statues, the silks, are all for, like, the people to feel better about it. He, but he's right that they're not in the Gospels. He's right that they're extra. And so the world is changing. The discovery of the new world, the bubonic plague, all said, maybe the church isn't right about everything. The church didn't know the new world was out there. There's nothing in the Gospels. There's nothing in Plato. There's nothing in Aristotle about the new world. And the bubonic plague, people went to the church and said, how do we solve this? How do we fix this? What do we do? People are dying. And the church went, live better? 
you're sinful. And they said, but my grandma died of this. My baby's dying of this. Like, my baby is two years old. My baby could not have been sinful. Like, they couldn't answer the problem of the bubonic plague. If you um, do my 101 and do my Renaissance um, video, we, we talk about this. The bubonic plague killed 25% of people. All people. Right? Basically, if you got it, you were going to die. I don't know what the kill rate is, 75% more, but the church couldn't answer what was causing this, and more importantly, how do we stop it? So people began questioning the church in the 1300s or 1400s, and the breaking away, and you get a lot of heresies, and you get a lot of like, maybe the church is not right. Not so far as to say it's wrong, but maybe it just isn't right about everything. And once you start questioning that, you can start questioning everything, right? Three, local priests were pretty bad at their jobs, as we talked about. It wasn't a calling. It was just a job for rich kids to do. So I'm rich. I got a bunch of sons, right? One is going to inherit the land when I die. One is going to go into the military as an officer. I'm going to give him a pension. I'm going to give him the money to hire recruits. Boom, he's, in, he's an officer. What do I do with the third? Or the fourth. Well, the priest is there. The priesthood is there. So I get him a bishopric. I buy him a bishopric. I buy him an abbey, a position in an abbey. And boom, he's got a job. And I know he's taken care of. The problem is, is that's not a job he really wants to do. Plus, the church is pretty decadent. Cardinal Wolseley, the, the cardinal of Great Britain at the time of Henry VIII, had a mistress, had kids. He lived in palaces better than the king. He lived in palaces. None such, for example, that were King Henry, when he sucks up the church lands, when he become, when he does the Reformation, he looks at Wolsey and goes, I'm taking all your stuff. And Wolsey's like, that's great. That's okay. You can use it. You know, it's okay. Thanks. And he's like, yeah, you have good palaces. He even took Cardinal Wolsey's casket. That's how Cardinal Wolsey was like, when I die, I'm going to be put in this awesome casket. It's going to be, you know, all kinds. It's black. It's going to be Henry VIII took it. So Cardinal Wolsey isn't even buried in the Wolsey casket. That's decadent, man. He liked to live well. Now, Wolsey was a poor kid made good. And we'll talk a little bit about that for good things that the church does. Wolsey was a poor kid who, who was able to move up in the church. The problem was, for, for him, it was a way of making money. It was a job, not a calling. It was a way to get power, a way to make money. Fourth, universities in the merchant class are more educated people. And they're growing in the 1500s. And they could think for themselves. They don't need a dumb priest. They could literally walk in and the priest could not answer their questions. The, they were smarter and better educated than the priests were, the local priests. Now, there were higher cardinals. There were, there were th still theologians. You went to university. If you went to the, the University of Paris, those priests teaching theology knew their shit. But the local country pastor in a little dinky town in the middle of nowhere, he doesn't know anything. He's, he's a little more educated than the people. He's educated enough to read the Bible. 
and to tell people kind of what it means. But what's happening is, is education is, is not flowing top down. It's now beginning to flow up. And so you get people having gone to university. You get people in the merchant class who have reading and writing and analytical skills who have read Plato and Aristotle. And they're better educated than the priests, the local priests are. Problems. Um, Luther sets out to reform, not break the church. But the Reformation gets political. Luther sets out and says, these are my 95 problems. Fix them. He's not trying to make Protestants, quote-unquote. He wants everyone to still be Catholic. He just wants a better church. But it gets political, and he gets sucked into it, and the Reformation becomes a political fight between kings and dukes, the pope. And so we get conservatism. We get a conservative backlash. Now, in the next bunch of lectures, we're going to hear the term conservative backlash a lot because what we're entering is an age of revolution. The Reformation, science, the Enlightenment, political revolutions, the Industrial Revolution, the Military Revolution. We're going to talk about all of these things, and the revolution means it's change, change, change. Well, not everybody wants to change. And so you get a conservative backlash because conservatives are in power. Because the conservatives are almost always in power because they're conservative. They, they like the way things are. Liberals only come into power when things are bad. Once things are good, people are like, this is good. Let's keep this. So it's why young people in America are liberal and older people going way back to the beginning of the country. Older people are always conservative. Why? Well, older people have more money. They have land. They have investments. They don't want things to be messed up. And young people are like, I don't own a house. I don't have a wife. I don't have kids. I don't even have a job I like. I have no investments. Like, let's change stuff. It can change can only be better because I don't own anything. So one is conservatism. It's the conservative reaction to Luther. We get the Diet of Worms. King Charles, remember, <laughs> Carlos I, Charles V, same guy, uh, the king of Germany, the king of Spain. See, he keeps popping up, and he keeps having councils. He keeps bringing smart people together to discuss stuff. It's one of the admirable things about Charles is he, he admits, I don't know. So let's bring smart people together and argue it and come to a solution. And the solution was Luther is condemned, as Galileo will be later. The idea is his ideas, Luther is wrong. He's too, too many um, problems. He's just a complainer. Shut your pie hole and just like you're you're a little German monk, who cares? Just who cares? And so Charles is like, all right, I'm with you. Right? He's got political motives, he's got money motives. But the invention of the printing press in the 1450s changes really everything. It allows the quick uh, the printing press is not good. The original press is a press. You literally set your type in metal each letter, 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 right? And you do it backwards, right? Then you put ink on it, then you put the paper on, on top, and then you press it. That is a terrible way of making a book. The printing press, while we all talk about the Gutenberg Bible, the first thing, you know, first major thing printed, 
the printing press is really good at being a copy machine. It's really good that once you've made the page, you do it over and over and over and over and over again. In fact, the church will use it for forms, for the indulgences. You go, oh, here's your indulgence form. Print, print, print. I need 99 copies. Print, print, print. The problem is with the printing press when you have to change for every page. That slows everything down. It's still faster than copying it by hand, but it's much better as a copy machine. Now, Luther is the master of this. Luther was able to simplify what are incredibly complex ideas. Like, what is the nature of the Eucharist? What about the divinity of Jesus? Like, where do souls go when you die? Like, what is the role of an indulgence? Like, what is motivation versus outcome in terms of a good work? Like, he is able to simplify hugely complex theological ideas for people, which made them popular. Because you could, if you could read, you could get one of these pages for a penny, for something you could afford, cheap, and read it. And if you couldn't read, somebody could read it to you. But it was quick, it was fast, it was small. You didn't have to get a 600-page, you didn't have to get Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica. Luther was able to do it in a pamphlet. Boom. He is the master of the quick advertisement. And so liberalism's ideas, and Luther is a liberal because he wants change. Liberalism's ideas spread faster than the conservative church could deal with. In fact, one of the big problems is people start reading Luther and then they go to their local priests. Remember, the local priests aren't that well educated. And they go, look, I don't know what I'm reading, but Luther says this. What do you, what does it mean? And what are you talking about? Do you agree with it or are you against it? Like people challenge their priests, their local priests. And the priest's like, I don't know. This is, oh, I don't, I just, I just wanted to have some dinner. Uh, you know, have a girlfriend on the side. I don't really want any of this. And people would be like, but because people also didn't understand either what Luther's necessarily, the, the complexity that Luther's talking about. But they know it's a problem. And so they go with it. So Luther's ideas become very popular, especially in places where people are literate, where people could understand Luther's ideas. Three, kings and powerful dukes didn't like the church-controlled non-taxable land and Luther gave them the justification to confiscate that land and get rich. Henry VIII of England, Gustav Vasa of Sweden, Christian II of Denmark, all confiscate church lands by becoming Protestant kings, and all became went from being a kind of minor noble lord with a cool title to being the richest person in their kingdom. So there's a motivating factor where kings go, wait a minute, Luther says my job as a king or as a duke is to protect the soul of souls of my people. The church is leading my people astray, according to Luther. So what do I need to do? I need to confiscate that land, create a new Protestant church, Church of England, Church of Sweden, right? And then create a new church that will save my people's souls. Nice. And I get to keep most of the land and the revenues from that land. So boom. So there's a so all of a sudden all these northern kings start going boom, 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 becoming Protestants. 
They go from being poor kings to wealthy kings. Now, the rich kings, Spain, France, Germany, don't. Which is interesting. They could have confiscated land, gotten even more wealth, but they were already so wealthy, they wanted the, the power that came with the Catholic Church. They didn't want to have to restart all over. The Catholic Church did a lot for them, was a big ally. I mean, if you're king of Spain, the Catholic Church is your best friend. And so the Catholic Church strikes back and encourages Catholic kings to attack Protestants. It says to the king of France, it says to the king of Spain, attack these people. Whatever you conquer is yours. You are allowed to have it. Jesus wants you to conquer England. So when Philip II thinks about sending the Armada to England to conquer England, part of it is that the church is encouraging him to bring England back to Catholicism. This leads to 150 years of war, and if the biggest one is the Thirty Years' War from 1617 to 1648. 30 million people will be dead. Germany is wrecked. Spain is exhausted by the end. It is the largest European war since the Second Punic War. That's Rome versus Carthage in the 200s BCE. More men are mobilized for war. More land is destroyed. More devastation happens. It is f more battles are fought in more places than in any war since the Second Punic War. That's how big suddenly wars are getting. They're getting Roman fight for control of the world big. And peace in 1648, the Peace of Westphalia, that's West, P-H-A-L-I-A, has in its clauses that the king determines the religion. So the Catholic king of France, France will be Catholic. The Catholic king of Spain, Spain will be Catholic. The Protestant king of Sweden, Sweden will be Protestant. And this creates nation states. This kind of kills the idea of the all-encompassing empire to unite all Europeans. 1648 is the start of countries. Now, legally, as entities, separate. And we haven't really replaced them with anything. Like, empires will come and empires will go, but the country remains. When we, we don't make new empires anymore, we make new countries, though. We make new nations. So the nation-state a unified language group where you have a government that creates local laws, it has borders. There's a definition for the nation-state, but that definition is essentially created in 1648, or at least legalized in international law. What are the advantages of the Protestant Reformation? Why is it a good thing that it happened? Well, one is humanism. You are important. You as an individual. You plus the Bible can know God. You can get to heaven. That's awesome. Remember, you are not important. Not in the history of the universe. The universe is 15 billion years old. What are you compared to that? The universe is infinite in size. It's got how many trillions of stars in it? And you're important? Think about how many people have lived, how many people will live, how many people currently live. 
and you're important? Holy crap, that's, that's a big ego to say you're important. But that's what humanism does. It says you are important. Your life is important. Yes, you are insignificant in the grand scale of the universe. But you're, you are still important. And you can know God by yourself. And you can get to heaven. Two, education for regular folk is to be encouraged. The Bible comes out in local languages. The Protestant Reformation says for you to be important, you have to be able to read your Bible. To get to heaven, you have to be able to read your Bible, which means you need to be able to read and write, but you also need the Bible in your local language. Three, we get a purer, less decadent, more, more limber, more populist religion. We get back to the Word. Jesus was an itinerant preacher. Not a pope on a golden throne in St. Peter's. And so we get back to kind of old school religion. What are the disadvantages of the Protestant Reformation? Well, first is people are dumb. Like, I just gave you humanism and people are important. And think about how many people are dumb in your life. How many people driving to school nearly get you killed because they do something dumb while they drive. This is Plato's old complaint from the, from the Apology, that people are dumb. Democracy can't work because people are dumb. Plus, there's 66 books of the Bible, and they're complicated. There's two different creation stories that don't agree right next to each other. See, Luther thought everyone would read the Bible exactly as himself. No, it turned out not to be, and Protestantism is going to break up almost immediately. And you might go, hey, professor, yeah, you're not being very nice to people, Think calling them dumb. Hey, George Carlin said the same thing. Think about how stupid the average person is, then realize half of them are stupider than that. And Winston Churchill, the best argument against democracy is a five-minute conversation with the average voter. Why, why would you trust people, regular, ignorant people who don't have time, who don't have the education, who didn't pay attention in school, who cheated on their tests? I'm looking at you. I know who you are. Oh, you got a 35 on test one and a 92 on test two that you took three days late? Sure. Of course you did. But that means if you cheated, you didn't really learn any of the lessons. So all of this stuff is complicated and people don't like complications because they have other stuff to worry about. And so Luther saying, here's the Bible to people is kind of crazy because people immediately said, well, this is important. And he would literally say, no, that's not that important. He's like, but it says it right here. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not important. But, but, but. You know, and we still deal with this today, right? You know, the people who are anti-gay rights will say, oh, in Leviticus it says, and you go, well, it also says you can own slaves. You could cut the tongue out of your, your son. You could put your daughter into prostitution. Uh, how do you feel about that stuff? Oh, that stuff isn't important. But the one gay part is. But, like, how does that work? And that's what we're talking about. Like, when the Catholic Church 
owned education, it had to deal with that. It had to explain these stuff to people, at least try to reconcile the contradictions in 66 books that are written roughly a thousand years apart. The earliest ones are in 500, in the mid 500s BC. The last ones are in the later 100s. Right? So we're talking what, 600 years? They're written by different peoples in different languages in different parts of the world about events that are way apart. Like the Moses events that are written are written 600 years after the Moses events might have happened. So how accurate can they be? What about the life of Jesus stuff? They're written 30 years, 50 years, 70 years after the life of Jesus. How accurate can they be? Right? And so here's the, here's the problem. is the Bible. It's not that the Bible's wrong. It's that it's complicated. And you have to deal with those complications. And people just are dumb and don't have the time. They're not educated in theology. Two, breaking the church monopoly equaled a splintering of all kinds of faiths means pick your church. Like before, when you had to be a Catholic, when the Catholic church was the only church, you may not have liked it, but there was a unity there. Now you get the splintering. Like Luther says, great, I'm the alternative. And plenty of people look at Luther and say, yeah, you're a jerk. I'm not listening to you. And they make their own churches. We get the Anabaptists who are like John Lennon's Imagine. Imagine there is no property. Imagine there's no possessions. Imagine there's no ownership. Like free love, man. Nobody owns. There's no marriage. You just have sex with whoever you want. Everybody raises kids together, right? And you get, who are also Protestants, the Puritan Scarlet Letter, which is you should never, ever, 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 ever think about much less enjoy having sex. Don't even think about it. Like, those are two different, completely different versions of the same Protestantism. One is very hippie liberal. One is extremely conservative. And the Catholic Church is kind of in the middle of this. The Catholic Church is kind of a center-right organization. There are Protestants who are way to the left, way more liberal than the Catholic Church. But there's also Protestants who are way more conservative. Much more conservative. Three, there's massive anti-Semitism. And this is Luther. This is Luther's fault. There's a massive anti-Semitism built in to Protestantism. That doesn't mean all Protestants have it, but Luther was, was anti-Semitic. There's no kind of way about it. He hated, quote, the rejected and condemned people, the Jews. And the Nazis, see the Nazis, the Nazis will use what Luther says about the Jews to justify doing bad things to the Jews. Why? Why is he anti-Semitic? Well, he emphasized the word. And so Jews should convert. Here's your Bible. Here's the New Testament. Here you go. He said to... Jewish scholars and rabbis and, and synagogues and said, I understand why you wouldn't want to be Catholic. I don't want to be Catholic. Like you get all this stuff and there's all this like signs and there's, there's the art and there's, there's all this other stuff. And here's just the word. Here's just Jesus and the word. And the Jews look at him, the rabbis look at him and go, but we have the Torah and the Talmud. We have words. We're, we're cool. We don't need your words. And Luther's like, 
but I've got the right words. And they're like, yeah, I don't know about that. We're pretty good with our right words. And Luther's like, why won't you convert? Mother, just convert. And they're like, dude, we didn't have, we didn't convert with the Romans. We didn't convert with the pogroms. We didn't convert during the crusades, which murdered us. Dude, we're not going to convert because you wrote a Bible. Oh, I'm sorry. Translated a Bible into German. Congratulations. Dude, what do you think we've been doing for like literally since 70 AD? What? And Luther's like, oh, forget you then. And he creates a, a, a rule book, seven things to do. And basically, it's steal Jewish books, destroy their books, destroy their temples, destroy their synagogues. It's not temples, synagogues, excuse me. Um, take their property, not quite murder them all, but, you know, it's not too far. Kicking them out of the country, totally okay. You know? So, there's a massive anti-Semitism in the Protestant Reformation because it's a pure Christianity. See, the Catholic Church doesn't have to like the Jews, but it learned to live with them because they were there. So it's like, okay, you know, and, and there are pogroms and there's persecutions and there's being kicked out of various different countries, Spain and England, right? But the Protestant Reformation brings a lot of violence, a lot of systemic violence, or a new wave of it anyway. Four, urban, industrial, and capitalized culture becomes mainstream. Protestant work ethic, the idea that if you work harder, you will make money. Well, if you're poor, then you must be lazy. That emphasis on the urban, the industrial, the capitalism is anti-rural, anti-worker, anti-poor. It's unsympathetic. Why? Well, because the people who are converting are urban people who are in trades, who are in merchants, who are in capitalism. Catholicism is a poor person's religion. It has alms for the poor. As rich people are supposed to give money to poor people. It has saints' days off. You don't have to work on these saint days. Protestantism doesn't have that. It has, doesn't have the saints. So if you don't have the saints, you don't have the saint days. You have church burials. Like, even if you have no money, the church is like, we'll bury you. We got you. Every Christian should get a piece of land at the end. We got you. Scholarships for the poor. That's how Cardinal Wolsey enters the church. So that the, the, the church does try to raise. It's not always good at it. It's not always admirable at it. But it does try to make poor people's lives better. Protestantism doesn't need to do any of that. In fact, the first poor laws, the first welfare in England in the 1520s is differentiates between the deserving poor and the non-deserving poor. There's the idea that, all right, there's old widows, right? And there's mentally handicapped children. Okay, they deserve some kind of money. But, you know, a 25-year-old dude, he shouldn't get anything. Dude, that's our welfare. 500 years later is our system is some people deserve welfare. Old grandmothers and other people don't. 
F them. Go find a job. Well, what if there are no jobs? Tough luck. Then it's your fault. You're poor. Because remember, in 1520, there's no understanding. There's no, no economics whatsoever. We're 200 years, 200, almost 300 years away from Adam Smith. We're a long way from economics being even close to a science. So there was no way of understanding why some people were poor, some people were unemployed. The idea was you were lazy. That's the Protestant answer to it. The Catholic answer was there's always poor. There's always been poor. There will always be poor. Don't worry about it. The Counter-Reformation. The Church strikes back. The Holy Father. Insert Godfather theme here. <sighs> Is a 1,500-year-old Italian church, the largest landowner in Europe, the protector and interpreter of the Bible, plus the holder of Greek and Roman knowledge, the successor to St. Peter and Emperor Constantine, the advisor to kings, crusader against Islam, diplomat of the world, the greatest patron of arts, music, culture, the creator of time, the work week, holidays, celebrations, and the scheduler of most people's lives, and the defender of the helpless pickle, i.e. people's souls, including Native Americans and Africans, is it going to take this shit? Is it going to let some wayward, sex-obsessed, depressed, and nihilistic German monk and a few weak northern kings wreck their yawn? Their yawn? No! Hell no! Now, wayward means he's not, he's not with the program. Sex-obsessed? What what's the first thing Luther does after breaking with the church? Marry a nun. First thing he says is, hey, monks can get married. And the Catholic Church is like, oh my God, Really? Really? This guy is doing all of this just to get his booty. Just get a booty call. Come on. This is not serious, right? At the very least, he's depressed and nihilistic. He thinks he's going to hell forever, right? Come on. Like, this is not, you know, the Catholic response to, to, to Luther is, this is not the guy who should be re leading a revolution. And much less the king of England and Sweden and Denmark. Oh, come on, man. Like that's that the king of France is worth more than all of those three kings together. Like, come on. So the church strikes back, and the first thing is the Inquisition. Treat the Protestants and converted Jews and Muslims as terrorists. They're not loyal to the church, which means you're not loyal to the king. So spying, arrests, torture, interrogations, records, archives equal looking for conspiracies. When you're interrogating these people, you double back. You use confusing philosophies. You give, hey, 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 dude, I don't want to torture you. I don't want to beat you up. I don't want to rip your arms out of their socket. I don't want to cut off your fingers. I don't want to take a red hot poker and put it in uncomfortable places. Dude, just give us names. Just give us names of people. We know. We already know you're in it because you've already been named. So just give us more names. We know. So just give us names, man, and we'll make it all stop. Look, let's be friends. I'm here. I can help you. You probably didn't even know what you were getting into. If you read, and I, I try to include stuff in, and um, I couldn't, really 
shrink it to, to a usable part. But if you read the interrogation reports from the Spanish Inquisition, it sounds a lot like Key and Peel CIA interrogation. It sounds a lot like the interrogations of Guantanamo Bay. Where you ask the same questions day after day after day, looking for inconsistencies. Hey, you know, three days ago you said. Now, the person hasn't slept in those three days, but that's what you... Oh, three days ago you said this. Well, I haven't slept. Well, but if you were telling the truth, you don't have to remember anything. So it shouldn't matter. We can see this in Umberto Echo's Name of the Rose, which is kind of a Sherlock Holmes in the Middle Ages, but he puts in part of the Inquisition in there. And this is a section from it. He did not speak. While all were now expecting him to begin the interrogation, he kept his hands on, his, on the papers he had before him, pretending to arrange them, but absently. His gaze was really fixed upon the accused, and it was a gaze in which hypocritical indulgence, as if to say, never fear, you are in the hands of a fraternal assembly that can only want your good. Right? We're friends. It's not your fault you're here. Mixed with an icy irony, as if to say, you do not yet know what, is, what your good is, and I will shortly tell you. And merciless severity, as if to say, but in any case, I'm your judge here, and you are in my power. So you better do what I say. And the Inquisition looks a whole lot like the torture interrogations in the 2000s. Now, I have to take a moment here because this is very, very, very important. Torture does not work. Torture does not work. Repeat after me. Torture does not work. Torture will get you information. Yes. Is it the right information? Is it truthful information? Or is it the information the torturer wants to hear? If the torturer is convinced there is a conspiracy to attack the Catholic Church, to attack the King of Spain, to attack America, are they going to find it? By torturing you? Yes. Because the tortured will give up any information, make anything up to stop the torture. You want to cut off my thumbs? In Reservoir Dogs, Harvey Keitel says, you go to cut off someone's thumbs, they'll tell you if they wear women's underwear. Yeah. I don't want my thumbs cut off. But what if I'm not guilty? Well, then I'll just make stuff up. Do you know I'm making stuff up? No, because you're convinced I am guilty. So you want to hear me profess guilt, which means when you say, give us names, I'll just make names up. And that happens over and over and over in the, in the interrogations. Who were you with? Who were you hanging out with? Who did you talk to? Just give me a name. Oh, I was with this person. I was with this person. I was with this person. Oh, yeah? Where do they live? Thank you, thank you. Where did you meet them? Thank you, thank you. Who else was in the room? Oh, these three people? Torture does not work. 
and I hate, hate, hate that we legitimized it, that the United States legitimized it. We invented human rights, the United States, with Nuremberg, with the Tokyo trials. The idea that the United States would be okay with torture in the early 2000s, that it would, that 40% of Americans would be like, well, if they're Muslim, it's okay, just hurt me. Because class after class after class, I had to say, it doesn't work. The Inquisition tells us it doesn't work. The French Revolution tells us it doesn't work. It doesn't get you good information. It just gets you stuff. Then you have to go investigate, is it true? Okay, moving on. Two, the Jesuits. We need to reform the priestly class. That's the idea of the Jesuits. We need to make it more professional. That Luther had a point that the, that the local priests were badly trained, badly educated, and weren't really into it. So the Jesuits are going to be like super loyal to the Pope. They're the hardcore. They're, the, they're, 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 they're into it. Their job is to reconvert the people by being better educated than Luther. That when people go, but Luther says the Jesuit can explain why Luther's wrong and do it better than Luther can explain why Luther is right. That's the idea of the Jesuits. So they're hyper-educated. Even today, a whole lot of Jesuits have PhDs. And not just in theology, but in like real sciences, history, poli-sci, in secular, in the secular world. The idea is to be able to explain this stuff. So Ignatius Loyola, who's the um, ex-Marine soldier who, after being wounded at, in battle, will, in his recovery, write the spiritual exercises, which are the rules for the Jesuit order, will have lots of rules, and I've... I've Pull three of them. The fifth rule, to praise vows of religion, of obedience, of poverty, of chastity. Remember, Cardinal Wolsey has sex with lots of women and has kids. And of other perfections of superrogation. And it is to be noted that as a vow is about the things which approach to evangelical perfection and not take other vows that lead away from evangelical perfection. The idea is... To be serious, to take that, to be professional, that you take vows to become a priest, that you have to mean them, and priests have to be held to account for them. His eleventh rule: to praise positive and scholastic learning, to define or explain for our times the things necessary for eternal salvation, and to combat and explain better all errors and fallacies. That's a response to Luther. We have to be better at this than Luther is. We have to convert people. We have to explain it to people. And then my favorite rule, the 13th rule, to be right in everything. This is like, if you have any doubts, if you have any doubts, just remember this rule. We ought to always hold that the white which I see is black if the higher article church so decides it. That's super loyal to the Pope. If the church says, black is white, then it is. No matter what you think, no matter, you do not argue with the church. You do not argue with the Pope. If black is white and white is black, boom, no worries. 
this is this will eventually get us to the Pope is infallible when speaking on doctrine. When he sits on the throne and says, this is what the church believes, boom. Not all the encyclicals, not all the little writings, like that stuff's not infallible. It's the sitting on the throne, which is very rare. The sitting on the throne and in all his glory goes, this is the truth. Boom. To be super loyal to the Pope. The church is also going to use its one super advantage. I mean, it's been around for 1,500 years. The one thing it has is money. So it's going to invest in art, music, Michelangelo, Raphael. It's going to dazzle people with style and colors and money and robes and purples and silk and candles and ceilings and domes. The Puritan meeting house is boring. It's four white walls. There's nothing to it. Like, all right, they have the word. But you know what Catholics have? More fun. See the Irish Catholics versus the rich Protestants on the movie Titanic. Here's Leonardo going, you want to have a, you want to go to a real party? And it's all these drunken Irish people dancing and they're having fun. And it's men and women together fornicating. And it's, it's all this kind of stuff. And that's Catholic. Meanwhile, the rich Protestants are up on the, the top deck smoking, not talking to anybody, not having any fun, having some poor people play some nice music in the corner, right? The Catholic Church has considerable soft power, goodwill. It's got respect. People will wait in three-hour-long lines to go into the Vatican Museum. That's how awesome the Sistine Chapel is. That is how awesome the Raphaels are. St. Paul's, the biggest church in London, charges a fee for you to enter. Meanwhile, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome and St. Patrick's in New York City are open. You just walk right in. Hello! And you can see the ceilings are painted like the sky. It opens up, right? There's Aztec gold in the Jesu in Ignatius Loyola's tomb. His church, the Church of the Jesuit Order. There's Aztec gold. Lining the walls. Like it's fun. Catholicism is for poor people. And it's more fun. Because it allows for like Falstaff. The, the farting and the jokes. And the, the fooling around. And the, the silliness. Where Protestantism is much more. Since you are responsible for getting to heaven. You are responsible for getting into heaven. So every time you F up, man, you cost yourself heaven. And finally, the Council of Trent in the 1550s. Luther might have had a few good points. That's the Council of Trent. It's, it's Catholics getting together, Catholic theologians getting together, and now it's 30 years after Luther started. But it's 30, It's the Council of Trent is like, oh, had a few good points and so it's the idea that the church has to evolve it has to change conservatism not reactionary not reactionism we can't go back the church can't go back that's the inquisition it, the inquisition fails the inquisition does not end protestantism it murders a whole lot of people there's some estimates like it murders 550 million people like no it doesn't do that 
you know, and murder is a very small group and a few thousand, maybe a couple ten, maybe maybe a few tens of thousands. That's a lot of people, but it's not 50 million. It's not what the wars will will kill. Right. But it's the idea that the church can't go back. It must move forward. So how is it going to move forward? It's not going to be liberal, that's for sure. It's not going to throw things around willy-nilly. It's got to be conservative, but it also has to evolve. And so liberalism, professionalism, the embrace of science are all going to be part of this. But always with a conservative Catholic ethics. So evolution and the Big Bang are okay. Like The church really doesn't argue with evolution as a process. It came up with the Big Bang. You know, the, all, the idea that, that the universe started 15 billion years ago from an explosion. But how does it feel about survival of the fittest? Nah, because that's not Catholic. Where everything murders each other in order to survive? No, no, no. No, because there's no kindness in that. Now, to be fair to Darwin, Darwin never says that about people. He says that about animals. He says animals need to eat. Or be eaten. And the church does not put the two together. It says, yeah, Darwin's probably right about the animals. That's fine. But, you know, humans have a soul. So we're a little different. The process that makes a human could be the same as the animals. But at some point, God says, boop, you got a soul. And God creates the soul. Or God made the Big Bang, boom. All right, there's a Big Bang. What caused it? For the Catholic Church, it's God made it. So there's room for God in science. The priesthood had to be a calling, not just a job. If you're going to be a priest, you have to take your vow seriously. You have to... It's the acknowledgement that the priests represent the church, even if they're in this little backwater place in the middle of nowhere. They still represent Rome. And if they're bad at their job, it makes Rome look bad. This is the enhanced, this is soft power. Soft power is not military power. It's not, it's not guns and ships and spies. It's attitudes. It's what do you think of? When you think of the Catholic Church, do you think it's a backward medieval place that's dumb, that's full of relics and idiots? Or do you think it's fun? and good-natured, and welcoming. That's soft power, what you think of. And so it's a reliance that priests matter. They are the leading place that people in the church interact, and so they have to, they have to be good at their jobs. And to help them, we need universities and colleges. We have to compete with the Protestant universities and, and colleges. Because remember, the Protestants are in these cities, in these, in these urban hubs. They're going to absorb a lot of these colleges. They want to be innovative. They want to be liberal. Educated people are, are usually liberal because you have to be because it's always new ideas. It's hard to be conservative and work in a university because at some point you have to say, yeah, no, no, these ideas are bad. All these ideas are bad. Well, that's not how university works. You can argue at some points, but something it's always change. I change my class every two years. Why? Um, when I started this class, we started with terrorism. Now we're talking about uh, Black Lives Matter and critical race theory, right? We had to do the depression. 
We had to do plagues. Like every two years, I have to change this class because the information is the same, but the, but the way you interpret it, the way you analyze it, the way you explain it is different. And so Catholicism needed universities and colleges in order to explain its Catholic ethics, but also to compete in the world of ideas, to keep up with the Protestant universities. And that's where we're going to end. So this was a big topic that affects us today. And thank you for taking this journey with me. Be safe. Take care.